The election of Donald Trump came as a shock to many, but others saw it as the culmination of a decades-long effort to uproot and destabilize America's democratic government. Among the most insidious strategies was to delegitimize government itself. To make government the enemy, you can make it very nasty and very dysfunctional. So, for example, in the 1980s, Newt Gingrich, he said that the battle that they're engaged in, this pro-market anti-government, it must be fought with the scale, the duration, and the savagery of civil war. Francis Moore LaPay, author of Diet for a Small Planet, and Adam Eichen, a democracy fellow at Small Planet Institute, have co-written Daring Democracy, Igniting Power, Meaning, and Connection for the America We Want. It's time for Progressive Spirit. Stay with us. Progressive Spirit is produced every week. It couldn't happen without the financial support of my congregation, Southminster Presbyterian Church in Beaverton, Oregon. Southminster's website is www.southmin.org. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon for the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, as well as podcast. Show KBOO some love, won't you? KBOO.FM and click donate. For the Pacifica Radio Network, PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schock. But what is so exciting to us and what we try to communicate that excitement in this book is that there is this movement for democracy itself to get all of our voices heard. My guests come from two different generations, but with a similar viewpoint and quest to empower Americans to leave despair behind and embrace the new democracy movement. Francis Moore LaPay's 18 books include the three million copy Diet for a Small Planet, described by the Smithsonian as, quote, one of the most influential political tracts of the times. Adam Eichen is a writer, researcher, and political organizer working to build a democracy that empowers all voices in society. Adam is a democracy fellow at Small Planet Institute, and he's on the board of directors of Democracy Matters. They're co-authors of the book we will discuss today, Daring Democracy, Igniting Power, Meaning, and Connection, for the America we want. They're with me via Skype from Boston. Welcome to Progressive Spirit. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So um, how did the two of you meet and write this book together? Well, you know what Woody Allen said, right? 90% of life is showing up. Ah, right. And so I was really determined to focus the rest of my life on democracy. And I learned about a conference in Mexico City on getting big money out of politics worldwide. And I jumped on an airplane. I landed in Mexico City, and guess who was at the airport in the rain? This young man named Adam Eichen. And we started talking, and we haven't stopped since. It's been quite it's been quite the journey, honestly. And, and we met, we crossed paths a couple times, and it really was uh, during April 2016, during the Democracy Spring mobilization, which was a march from Philadelphia to Washington, D.C., about 140 miles, and then seven straight days of civil disobedience on the Capitol steps uh, to get big money out of politics and ensure the right to vote for all Americans, uh, where we really became friends. I mean, I don't know how many of your listeners have ever been on a hike, let alone a nine-day march, but uh, I'm going to be honest, there's not much to do on a long march except talk. And so Frankie and I spent a lot of time really grappling with the question of, well, what does democracy look like? right now and what is our ideal form of democracy what, what are we fighting for and uh you know that that's where the seeds of this book uh you know were planted and uh, we've been friends ever since well i think it's exciting that uh, from two generations talking about something very important uh i know francis when your book came out diet for a small planet that's a huge book uh with three million copies and uh, adam uh, you were what, what were you 10 then or five or <laughs> oh, basically <laughs> I, 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 we, Frankie and I met when I was 22 and that was fall of 2015 uh, we then we became friends when I was 23 uh, and then we started writing the book when I was just turning 24 that's exciting now you uh, kind of got involved really with the Occupy movement is that right Adam 
that that's correct. That I was a freshman in college when Occupy broke out. I was actually there on the very first day and went back a couple times. Uh, and it was a very formative moment for me. It's really when politics became real. It wasn't just something uh, intellectual endeavor. It really was kind of life. It was life and death. So do you, would you call that one of the hopeful uh, signs, the Occupy movement itself? Oh, absolutely. I think that that was an incredible moment for uh, for Americans. I think there's a lot of disparaging comments about it because it didn't produce legislative change. Uh, and, and that's true. There's a lot of fair criticism that's lobbed at it. Uh, but it really did break open the narrative around economic inequality. And, and most importantly, I think, is it really served as the basis of education for a lot of young people, which there aren't many opportunities to to learn how to organize and to be politically active uh, in today's society. Um, and I think Occupy taught a lot of people, especially those who ended up creating and leading the Democracy Spring movement that brought Frankie and me together. Uh, a lot of that, a lot of those folks came out of the Occupy movement as well. Um, so I, I think that was a real formative moment for a lot of people. Since the uh, election of uh, number 45 here, uh, people of many people on the left have gone into kind of a sense of despair or cynicism, but we often don't realize how close it was, uh, the movement behind, say, Bernie Sanders. Uh, that was pretty strong, and it could have gone pretty well either way in this election. So it isn't that suddenly the whole world has turned Trumpite, right? I mean, we're, we're talking uh, a formidable resistance for for pro-democracy movement out there that I understand your book is saying, yeah, it's there, and let's show you some of these examples. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, we start our book saying that people who voted for Trump and pe people who voted against Trump, they were both saying... <laughs> We want to change this rigged system. We are fed up. So we stress in our book that indeed uh, we hear a lot about divided nation, divided nation, but actually there's a lot that we agree on. 85% of it, I mean, that's huge. 85% agree that our system needs, our political funding system, financing system needs fundamental change. And that is a great sign. And most of us also believe that big money has too much influence. And even on solutions like public financing, over 70% agree, yes, we have to move in that direction. So there is a lot of unity. I was talking with someone uh, uh, who was talking about, for example, the similarities between the Occupy movement and the Tea Party on the other side. I mean, obviously, they had different uh, strategies of, of uh, perhaps of, re of achieving a goal, but it came from this uh, same place of discomfort, of discomfort with the very things you're talking about. Would you, would you go there? Would you say that much, that there's some similarities between, for example, uh, you mentioned those who voted for Trump and those who voted against Trump have that in common? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely, I mean, I have someone very close to me, actually, who uh, did vote for Donald Trump. And, you know, the, the thing that we agree on most, actually, and I didn't know that we would agree on things, even though uh, the polls show this broad-based agreement, is, in fact, uh, we, you know, he, he was railing against big money in politics, against the Koch brothers, against big left, uh, you know, left-wing spenders as well, and, you know, anti-corporate power. He was, you know, really railing against corporate power as well. And so there was a lot of similarities there. Uh, and feeling of powerlessness. Um, and and that, that, that is a very promising sign, one that I didn't necessarily expect to see in my lived experience. Uh, I will say, though, while the anger around Occupy and the Tea Party are, are similar um, and some of the roots are the same, you know, one of the things that we talk about in our book is uh, the rise of an anti-democracy movement, a well-funded uh, kind of with eight strategies uh, to undermine democracy and put forth uh, a anti-democratic frame through American society. And, and one of the methods, we can go into more of this in detail, uh, is the use of outside money to support astroturf campaigns. So, so movements that appear grassroots, but aren't really grassroots. And the Tea Party was not fully grassroots. And I think that's something that a lot of people still f fail to understand, that the groups like Freedom Works and Americans for Prosperity were funding uh, and making sure that the, the the spark that ignited the Tea Party movement became a forest fire, if you will. Uh, and so the Tea Party was helped by uh, millions upon millions of dollars spent by what we call an anti-democracy movement. And that was not the same with Occupy. If anything, it was underfunded and, and there wasn't enough uh, establishment support for it.
Yeah, that's very good. You know, uh, people will often say that people vo- that uh, many are voting against their own interests. Uh, that's a, uh, often a lament from the left. H- how would you evaluate that? And others might criticize that and say, "Well, the left, you're being elite in in this regard." Uh, what do you What do you think about that? Well, I think it's it's factually true, <laughs> unfortunately. And here's how we lay it out in the book. Uh, we really describe a culture of blame and shame in our country that helps to understand how Trump got elected. And it begins with what we call a spiral of powerlessness, where we are taught over eons, you know, that this mindset developed that human beings really boil down to self-interest and materialism, acquisitiveness, and that Therefore, you know, it's best to just let the market sort things out. And once you buy that idea that there really is a free market, we don't believe one exists and never has, then you think, well, if the market is free, then the winners and losers are fairly sorted out. And if I'm losing, you know, I'm I'm really I'm really ashamed and I, and I have to accept responsibility. And if you can then point the finger at though, if you're winning and you can point the finger at those who aren't winning or, or struggling, then you feel better about yourself. And, and there develops this culture uh, in which it is very easy for people to think that um, buying into the market solution, government is bad, government is your, in, is your enemy, uh, people fall into that uh, belief and therefore are supportive of things as, you know, even today with the tax proposals of the administration that would benefit the very wealthiest the most. Um, so we've seen program after program or approach after approach increase concentration of economic power in this country, often supported by people most hurt by it. So that today, the last figure we saw is that three people now control more wealth than the bottom half of the U.S. population. Whoa, say and, that one. We'll say that one one more time. Three, three. Pe- okay. three people. Yeah, this this myth of a market that sorts winners and losers out fairly, then it leads to that kind of oh well, half of half of us are the takers and half of us are the makers, so to speak, which is a line of uh, right-wing thinkers. And so I I really think that um, this climate of misinformation is is the reason that people are working against their own interests. And I just want to quickly jump in and say, you know, one of the things we talk about, again, to jump back to the anti-democracy movement, is a a key strategy has been the proliferation and well-funded think tanks that promote this sort of ideology. I mean, you know, organizations like the Cato Institute and Heritage Foundation, I mean, those are two think tanks that were funded by just a handful of billionaires that the explicit goal was to manipulate the American mindset around the issues of economy and other anti-democratic policies. Um, And I also want to just counter that Americans or a subset of Americans always vote against their interests, especially when it comes to democracy. In the 2016 election, while most Americans, uh, you know, you know, were concentrating on the uh, federal elections, there were four, or there were 17 ballot initiatives across the country that dealt with some sort of pro-democracy. Uh, it was a pro-democracy ballot initiative, and 10 of those were actually substantial democracy reforms, actual policies that were being voted on. The other four, the other the other four were, or the other seven were a referendum, um, and 10 or 14 out of 17 passed. So basically, you see massive when people have the opportunity to vote on directly on the issues that they care about, they generally will vote in favor of it. And we saw that in the 2016 election. You know, um, here in Oregon, Many of us were advocating for what was called Measure 97, which would put corporate tax on uh, companies making over like 25 million in in this state. It would start at 25 million. It was an, a pretty obvious tax that would be helpful for our education system, which is really hurting here in Oregon. And it was amazing to see the disinformation and the misinformation uh, from corporate headquarters just swamp us on that one. I mean, for a while, I thought that that might happen, but it really got beat. But it also illustrates that there was a huge grassroots movement behind uh, this Measure 97, even though it lost. 
Well, Oregon plays heavily in our book, in our speeches about our book, because we have been so impressed that you all have taken the leadership in automatic voter registration and that you provide evidence of how much can change in terms of more people participating as voters because of that. It's the most inclusive approach to registration. So we've just been impressed now that so many states have followed your lead already. Nine states have taken this up, and plus the District of Columbia and, and others are stepping up, including the state of Massachusetts. You know, we like to think we're leaders, but hey, you are way ahead of us. My guests are Francis Moore LaPay and Adam Eichen, uh, authors of Daring Democracy, Igniting Power, Meaning, and Connection for the America We Want. Let's talk about a little bit of the bad news first, in a sense. Uh, it, it, well, let me let me go here. Uh, you, met, you write in your book that the birth of the anti-democracy movement was in 1971 with Supreme Court Justice Lewis Powell uh, writing a memo to the Chamber of Commerce to, uh, to quote, elevate private power and undermine public voices. Uh, talk about, it kind of set us up here. What was Justice Powell's effect uh, on the Chamber of Commerce? What was he doing? Well, it was even broader, you know, than that, but definitely the Chamber of Commerce. But he was seemed to be genuinely terrified. Lewis Powell, soon to become a Supreme Court justice, was apparently, according to a lot of people, a pretty nice guy. But he was terrified. We look, you know, I lived in the 60s, and I was delighted that the women's movement, the anti-war, uh, the 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 um, civil rights movement, the anti-poverty movement, which I was part of, we felt we were making big changes for the good. Uh, we cut the poverty rate in half in a little over a decade. But Lewis Powell was terribly alarmed. He felt that we were in a do-and-die, do-or-die struggle for the American free enterprise system that was being attacked by those who would, quote, destroy it. So he was asked by the Chamber of Commerce to give advice on how the free enterprise system can be protected and survive. And he did in a 34-page memo. He laid it out. And eerily, it reads like a playbook. Um, and so whether or not these billionaires who carried the torch with it, whether they'd read the memo or not, they certainly fell in line with its principles of manipulating the mindset It's one category of their strategy and the other we call rigging the rules. And so things really began to change in the 70s and especially in the 80s. And it's amazing how quickly, just very quickly, it's, it's amazing how quickly uh, they enacted the playbook. I mean, just to give you a, a very brief one or one statistic that really kind of always shocks me is in the decade following Powell's memo, the number of uh, corporations with lobbyists increased 14 fold. Okay. So they, I mean, they, uh, they understood completely that, you know, the key, one of the, the perhaps the, the key me message from Powell was corporations need to start getting involved in politics with all of their might. In every aspect of politics, they now need to be involved. And they took up that mantle. They said, okay, we're going to do it. And you see it from the numbers. So we don't, we don't you know, know exactly, oh, well, this corporation read the memo and, and then they did it. But we look at the numbers and you know, number of firms with lobbyists go up 14-fold in just the decade after Powell writes his memo. Uh, they followed it. Was uh, the deregulation uh, with, uh, under uh, Reagan uh, also connected to uh, this movement that started in the early 70s? Absolutely. In fact, the Heritage Foundation, which is a leading right-wing think tank, it put forth to the Reagan administration a literal book, huge one, 1,300 policies that they were advocating, almost 1,300. And of those, 61% were adopted by the Reagan administration. And yes, they had to do with withdrawing safeguards that we put in place to protect the public. And, um, you know, with this promotion of privatize, privatize, privatize. So it, it was uh, quite a clear shift. Uh, well, manipulating the mindset, can you talk a little bit about uh, how, that, how that's worked? How, how, did the, how did they play this out, they? And, and, and let's, can we put some names to they? Well, I mean, you know, the, the, some of the folks that we focus on the most are a handful of billionaires ranging from the Olin family to the Koch brothers to the Scaife fa uh, family, uh, and now most recently to Robert Mercer, Rebecca Mercer, and the you know the Mercer family. 
uh, really, I mean, they've been the key players along with, you know, corporate America. I mean, they really, it's corporate America and then a handful of uh, billionaire families who have, you know, underwrote much of the, you know, a lot of foundation funds, you know, for grants, for, uh, you know, chairships at universities, uh, you know, funding think tanks, uh, you know, you know, efforts to deregulate the media and then prop up new sources of media. So one of the, mo the kind of the most prominent examples right now is Breitbart. The Mercer family basically underwrote Breitbart as a, a avenue for extreme right wing ideology. Um, that's just but one example of the way to disseminate a message. Um, and, and, you know, it's really unbelievable. I mean, almost shocking uh, the degree to which uh, they've tried to disseminate information from grade school to grad school. I mean, it's, you know, putting, uh, you know, paying for college, you know, massive college organizing, uh, you know, the one of our favorite things is that uh, the founding of law and economics, which was originally kind of a fringe legal movement to try and put rational self-interest in the core of all things legal, basically putting the Milton Friedman style free market economics into the legal field. And it was fringe until it was underwrote by, you know, millions of dollars by a, a small handful of people. Um, and it became nationally known and now a legitimate source of study. Um, and it's been ex incredibly effective. Yes, and yes. It, it using all the marketing and advertising and, and slogans and, and everything you can think of to put together, as you mentioned, which is really a fairly new understanding of, of how the world should work. Yeah, and maybe the most insidious, it's hard to say what's most, but among the most insidious strategies was to delegitimize government itself. To make government the enemy, you can make it very nasty and very dysfunctional. So, for example, in the 1980s, Newt Gingrich, who later became a majority leader, he um, he said that the battle that they're engaged in, this pro-market anti-government, it must be fought with the scale, the duration, and the savagery of civil war. And uh, that's pretty intense. And also, of course, making government dysfunctional. So you up the use of the filibuster, which means that things don't get done. And you even stop government altogether in the shutdown, for example, in 2013, which cost taxpayers $24 billion. Now, that's sure to turn people off government, too. We will just shoot this in the head, <laughs> is, is the idea, if we don't get our way. Uh, yeah, and so public faith in government actually fell from about 42% at around the time of the Powell memo to 7% by 2014, by one measure. My guests are Francis Moore LaPay and Adam Eichen, authors of Daring Democracy, Igniting Power, Meaning, and Connection for the America We Want. Uh, you were in your chapter called uh, Rigging the Rules. Uh, you say uh, for state-level races, there's just a quote I thought was pretty big nationwide 84 percent of state candidates who had raised the most money uh won in the 2000 2013 14 cycle can you even be a candidate if you don't have a lot of money no absolutely not i mean money it's amazing how much money plays a role in politics and unfortunately one of the narratives that came out of the 2016 cycle was that oh look hillary clinton spent more money than donald trump therefore money in politics doesn't matter that's the wrong message to take out of what happened in 2016. One, the presidential race is just very different. It has a kind of a national bully pulpit uh, and free media coverage that is just not the case with other races. But when, when you look at these, you know, when you look at federal, you know, Congress or Senate, uh, and especially state and local races, the candidates who raise the most money, they win. And, you know, what we tell the story of, of a, uh, somebody who wanted to run in Wisconsin, um, and the, you know, the democratic party basically said, can you raise, you know, this, this amount of money, you know, a large sum. And she was like, are you kidding me? No. Do you know where we live? We live in a rural part of Wisconsin. And they said, okay, well, you're not a viable candidate then get lost. And that's not the fault of anybody except for the system. And you see this, the, the amount of the number of people with promising potential political careers who are squashed before they even begin is mind-numbingly large. Mm -hmm. We waste so much talent, so many people who could be wonderful public servants will never have the opportunity in the United States because of the money primary that people have to go through just to be considered viable. 
and that's mm-hmm. on both sides of the aisle. I mean, so, so uh, it is basically empty, empty, uh, empty suits. And even when you win election, you're still spending the bulk of your time fundraising. I mean, because you always have to prepare for the next ele- next election. You always have to meet either your own personal fundraising goals or for the party or your fundraising for the party. And frankly, it's a miserable existence. And, and I, I can't even imagine being a politician because you're not actually spending time doing what you should be doing, which is legislating and being and working for the public good. You're working for your own good fundraising. And you know that the concentration among the donors of this money-driven system, first of all, the last national election, 6.4, 6.5 billion dollars. But that came from about one half of 1% of the American people, those who contributed over 250 or so dollars. So they, they, those provided two thirds of the $6.4 billion. Two thirds of that uh, money came from this tiny group. I'm John Shuck. This is Progressive Spirit. I'm speaking with Francis Moore LePay and Adam Eichen. Daring Democracy is the book. More to come. Stay with us. You're listening to the podcast version of Progressive Spirit. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Podomatic, TuneIn, or whatever podcast app you use to listen and give Progressive Spirit five stars, won't you? Contact me through ProgressiveSpirit.net with your thoughts and ideas about the show, and be sure to share this podcast on your social media. Follow on Facebook and Twitter. The website, again, is ProgressiveSpirit.net. Activist and author Francis Moore LaPay and researcher and political organizer Adam Eichen are talking with me about the movement to restore democracy. Their book is Daring Democracy, Igniting Power, Meaning, and Connection for the America We Want. This is Progressive Spirit. I'm John Schock. Okay, so now I'm depressed, uh, and we've got Citizens United. Uh, we can, you can talk about the effect of that, too. But now, how do we reverse this? How, how do we get money out of politics? Is, 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 is that a mountain too high to climb? It is not. We can tell you all sorts of reasons, and it's uh, most countries in the world have public financing as part of their elections. The point is that there is only one way we feel, and that is when the American people really fall in love with democracy is the only way to solve our problems and come out and support candidates who are focused on d- democracy reforms. Yes, we have to be careful to make sure that our issues that we care about, whether it's climate change or poverty, those deserve our attention as well. But what is so exciting to us and what we try to communicate that excitement in this book is that there is this movement for democracy itself to get all of our voices heard and to get money out of the driver's seat. And the only way it's going to happen is if enough Americans really come to really come forward with that agenda. And the solution in terms of policy is what's called public financing of elections. And there are many iterations of it, but one of our favorite stories is that of Maine. Maine became the first state to have full public financing for all statewide races. And essentially, someone who wants to qualify for the state house has to get five, $5 from about 50 people, and then they have their campaign funded. Um, and it allows for people like Deb Simpson, who we t- whose story we tell in the book, who is a waitress. And she didn't think she could run for office, but then she realized, wait a minute, I'm a waitress. I can raise $5 from 50 people. She did. She got funded. She won and then became a five term state politician and had remarkable responsibilities and was well respected. Um, So you start getting ordinary people who don't necessarily have uh, connections with millionaires and billionaires to be able to run for office. It starts, you know, chipping away at the money primary, which we were just talking about. And you see this in different iterations across the United States. It's still a nascent policy. But in New York City, for example, has a different system where if you raise under a certain amount, I think it's $175 in your district, that money gets matched six to one by the city. So if you get $10 from your constituent, the city will give you $60. And all of a sudden you have $70, right? Because the Supreme Court said you can't limit uh, speech and money is speech. So it's hard to limit the amount of money going to politics. 
But what we can do is lift up the voices of all Americans, regardless of wealth. And public financing of elections is the way to do that. And it is 100% constitutional and has major implications in terms of both uh, who's giving money. It makes it more represent representative. It makes our politicians more representative. And Maine, for example, has the highest uh, portion of working class Americans in the state house. And it also allows for different policy outcomes. It gives Americans more voice in terms of policies. And one of our favorite examples of that from Maine is that after clean elections were introduced, that a bill that had been fought by the electronics industry was actually passed. Now, this is a bill spread now to other states in which the electronics maker of your laptop or whatever it is has to take full responsibility for the life cycle. So you can bring that back, it gets recycled, and guess what? In the just the first couple of years of the implementation of this new law, kept one pound for every citizen of the state, one pound of lead out of the state's environment. So this can be revolutionary kinds of real life uh, safeguards for people's well-being as a result then of clean elections. And I have to quickly jump in, and I'd, I'd feel ashamed if I didn't give a, a special shout out to Seattle, uh, which in 2015 passed a voucher system. So every resident gets four $25 vouchers that they can give then give to eligible politicians. And in the 2017 uh, city elections and the municipal elections, um, it was the first time ever that we've, you know, the, the, the voucher system went into effect. And the results, the numbers are just stunning. Uh, there was a study by Every Voice, a great organization doing democracy work, that showed that the number of small donors uh, almost tripled. Um, and the donor base was more representative of Seattle. Uh, and the candidates who used public financing beat back candidates using big money. Um, so the results from Seattle show that not only do we have policies that work, but that we can implement them and change our politics. So a part of that is uh, you, you mentioned about Maine uh, and, and places being able to allow people who don't have access to money uh, within themselves or uh, representing of, of, of corporate interests can run for election, can raise the funds with uh, public financing. What about on the other end of, of just all the money required to be spent uh, through the media? Are, is there anything that's, uh, w any groups working to uh, stop uh, just the, from the media's end of just making a profit off of selling elections? Well, there's a great group um, called uh, Free Press, which is doing uh, really good work around media consolidation and other forms of fairness in media. That's it, you know, reforming media is awfully hard. Um, right now, we're still playing def a lot of defense in terms of um, you know making sure that net neutrality. There was a big fight in 2014 to to save net neutrality, and that seems to while they won in in in, in that fight. Uh, it seems like now they're back on the defensive, and in the next month, net neutrality could also be on the chopping block with uh, Trump's FCC. Um, but there are groups working for public airwaves, uh, like Free Press and others, uh, to to try and make it so that we don't have to necessarily, you don't have to rely on corporate media um, that aren't covering the elections in a proper way or, you know, are sensationalist in their coverage, as many news organizations were during the 2016 cycle, where Trump, I believe, as of March 20, I think it was March 2016, had received uh, about two billion in free coverage. Um, you know, money that he didn't even have to spend. It was just basically free advertising for the Trump campaign as of March or May 2016. It was a New York Times report. Um, so yeah, there are groups working on this. It's a hard fight, and it's probably on the defense, you know, defensive right now. Um, but yeah, and, and one of the claims we make in the book is that media reform is an integral part of this democracy movement. That because the assault on our democracy has been so broad-based from manipulating the mindset, including the media, to rigging the rules of voter suppression and unleashing money in politics, the democracy movement has to be equally broad in its efforts to reclaim our democracy. Talk about voter suppression. Um, uh, how have you seen that happen? How did that happen in, uh, well, all the, all the way through here, 2000, 2004? 16, even 8 and 12. Tell me a little bit about uh, uh, the voter suppression and how that's worked. Is that, that um, um, uh, the, the work in terms of having people on the, on the lists who are, uh, and then double voters, that, that, that whole scam? 
Well, I mean, I think you're referring to interstate cross-check, which is the yes. purging of voters. Yeah. And, and, that, and that's, a, that's a complicated issue. And yeah, there is definitely a problem with voter purging, especially with uh, the system that uh, the Secretary of State of Kansas, Chris Kobach, created because, uh, you know, the voter rolls are indeed uh, messy, but the there is no evidence of widespread in-person voter fraud. That is just a myth, and it's a myth that's impeddled by uh, think tanks like the Heritage Foundation. So that that is just the height of uh, malfeasance when people proclaim voter fraud. And, uh, and we think that if, it seems very intentional in the sense that uh, it motivates people to believe that we need voter ID laws requirements. And 34 states now have some form of voter ID requirement. And um, so what what's the problem here? The problem is that <laughs> that low-income people, people of color, often are working the hardest, the longest hours, uh, have less access to transportation, and therefore they are those who would be most likely to be impeded by voter ID requirements. And, and, and Adam has also made clear that there is no, absolutely no credible evidence that there's any problem in terms of voter fraud. So um, the, the point is these requirements feel very directly anti-full uh, enfranchisement of us all. And beyond voter ID requirements, we also know that, for example, in um, the last election, there were 600, 686 polling stations were removed in states that had historically uh, made it difficult for low-income people of color to participate. So there's that's another piece of it, just making it more difficult, limiting hours, limiting early voting. Uh, so this is what we mean by voter suppression, and it's very real. And, and I have to say that a lot of this was enabled by the Supreme Court in 2013, which is still a story that not enough people are talking about when they gutted, it was the Shelby County case, which gutted the, preem the preemption formula of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Basically, the Voting Rights Act had a formula so that any state or so, so states or counties or regions that had a history of um, racial discrimination in election law uh, would have to be approved by the Civil Rights Division of the, of the Justice Department. Basically, the federal government could, could stop any racist laws from going into effect before they went into effect. Um, and the Supreme Court basically gutted that provision, uh, gutted the formula. Congress has not acted to draw a new uh, map of, of what, where is, is, you know, the places that are uh, covered by this formula. And as a result, there's been very little recourse uh, to prevent these discriminatory election laws from going into effect. Uh, there's been progress in litigation, but it's become increasingly difficult now that the Supreme Court has rendered the Voting Rights Act almost unworkable uh, in many ways. Francis Moore-Lappe and Adam Eichen uh, speaking with me from Boston. They are the authors of Daring Democracy, Igniting Power, Meaning, and Connection for the America We Want. There's a chapter here called Listen Up, America. North Carolina has a story to tell. Uh, Leroy Barber, uh, the Moral Majority Movement. Tell uh, what's the significance of that work down there? Well, we think of North Carolina as the good, bad, and the ugly because it's a microcosm of this struggle that we're talking about and such an inspiring one because this a movement, Moral Mondays, that just got underway in 2011, it is uh, really involving now cross-section of people willing to regularly uh, do civil disobedience, gather at the Capitol and make their put their bodies where their values are and and really make a difference. So it, it's really a story uh, that's incredibly encouraging and has then spread to other states. And I think, you know, the kind of, the reason we call it the good, the bad, and the ugly is because this, this movement, which originally started as something called HK on J in 2006, kind of a coalition building, it really was prompted mostly after uh, the right-wing takeover in 2010 by extreme anti-democratic forces, which really undermined most democratic aspects of the state. Um, that once the, the, they took over the state house, they then took over the governor's race, and then they gerrymandered the state, and then they passed this monster uh, election law that repealed a bunch of pro-democracy laws that were on the books, and then really it implemented some of the worst forms of voter suppression. And so this movement that we highlight was a response in large, you know, large effect to 
this anti-democracy usurping of the, the the state of North Carolina. And and they've seen progress. I mean, it's kind of this 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 um, story of hope in the face of extreme adversity. And they've stuck with it, even though they weren't seeing progress that they were losing and yet they, they kept fighting they didn't give up and eventually they ousted uh, um, their Republican governor who was the uh, really responsible for a lot of the anti-democracy policy and they've been working on litigation and many other things so North Carolina is still the it's still a lot of the story is yet to be told but the reason we love it so much is that it explains what a, what a movement of movements looks like in practice what does a broad-based large coalition look like? fighting for democracy reform? And then how do you stay the course and make sure that even in the face of, of despair and anti-democracy policy, do not give up and keep pushing? Uh, so it's really a remarkable story. And frankly, I think I could speak for, for Frankie as well, that it really gives us hope in terms of our own work and, and our faith that despite how bad things look at the moment, nationally or in states across the country, uh, grassroots organizing does make the difference and it will allow us to win. Talk a little bit about then um, the, the the party system that we have in the United States. I mean, people. Well, I'll just I, I I'll say a friend of mine uh, goes to the poll and says, "Well, here's the Democrat and here's the Republican." And frankly, at the end of the day, I don't see a whole lot of difference. I want to vote for the third party candidate who I really value, but there's no hope of winning in any of that. So that kind of creates a level of despair and cynicism. Do you do you see any hope on 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 the idea of expanding? the party system itself. Well, I'll jump to a mechanism that is very exciting about a change in voting that makes it possible for us to not just uh, feel like we're going to have to compromise or throw a vote away. And it's called ranked choice voting. Have you ever heard of it? Yes, I have. Tell tell us more about that. Well, it's it's really a process where you don't just vote for one person. You really... Uh, you really are able to rank the choices available to you, your first, second, third, whatever. And then if the first winner doesn't have a majority, then they redo the count and see who's coming up next until we there is a majority winner. And so if you have a Green Party, say, on your ticket and you want to vote Green Party, you can vote Green Party knowing that it's not going to give a vote to somebody who you totally oppose uh, because you could still put as your second place, say, a major party that you felt a little more sympathetic toward. So it's it's quite an amazing breakthrough. Back to our heroes in Maine, they were able to pass it at, uh, at the state level. Uh, they did it in a very clever way because it's a little bit hard to understand. And so they decided to employ the breweries for which um, Maine is famous, that people could come uh, and taste beer at the local breweries and learn about ranked choice voting at the same time. Basically, I, you know, when I was, I was interviewing the, the campaign manager for the effort and I, I asked him, how do you possibly explain ranked choice voting? And he said, it's easy, beer. And so they'd give, you know, give everyone the, the free flight of beer and then they'd rank it. And then they'd go through the elections so that you would have the right, you know, the regulars, the brewery, the good government folks and people who just were interested in what does a beer election mean? And and it passed in 2016. It was one of the reform. It was one of the the 17 ballot initiatives across the country uh, during the 2016 election. And it, and it caught on so much this approach of helping people understand that some people had people rank their cookies or, you know, their paintings in their home and get the feel of, okay, how, this is how it works. And uh, it was one of those things that uh, everybody was surprised, I think, by the fact that it did, it did pass. It's been challenged now, but our sense of Mainers, they do not give up. And so they are now proceeding ahead to try to uh, make sure that they have enough signatures to overturn the, the legislators blocking of it. Let's take that slogan, Mainers do not give up, because that's really the key, isn't it? I mean, the anti-democracy movement, uh, if you give it an early 70s start, uh, it took a while to get where we are here. It took this long to get to 2817 and what we are. It's going to take a long time for the pro-democracy movement, step by step, isn't it? State legislature, uh, community organizing, uh, town meeting by town meeting, uh, to make that development change it back toward more democracy. Is that right? 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there are many examples. I mean, in numerous books that, you know, have been written on the subject of, of well, what we call the anti-democracy movement, um, where they've lost. And it's it's provoked a lot of, uh, you know, internal uh, uh, conflict in the ranks of the anti-democracy movement. They have not always won. It's just been a long game and that they've been able to eventually, it's been a war of attrition in some respects, and they've been winning. Um, but that doesn't mean that we can't win. And I also just want to highlight just on the topic of the two parties, I also, you know, whenever we've been going across the country on our book tour, and, you know, we get a similar question about, you know, why, you know, both both parties are, are awful, we should avoid them. Um, but, I, you know, I want to highlight the amazing organizing that went into pushing the Democratic Party to support democracy reform, that if you read the 2016 uh, Democratic Party platform, Frankie and I could not have written the platform on democracy better ourselves. It was amazing. Okay. Okay. It was amazing. And it took a lot of grassroots activism to push it on the agenda. Now, Hillary Clinton did not run on that platform, and she should have. We argue, I, th I think I could say that, we, we would argue Absolutely. that she probably would have won had she spoken to the alienation people felt to our political system. But she had the language she needed in the platform. I encourage because all of your of listeners. <laughs> yeah, because of citizens saying, you know what, our top issue is money and politics, is voter suppression, is, you know, just yep. basic representation. Um, so I encourage anybody who thinks that the Democratic Party is beyond repair to go through and read that platform, because what was missing is not pushing the Democratic Party to recognize these issues. It was the secondary organizing to make sure that Hillary Clinton and other Democrats spoke about the issues. We have a real opportunity moving forward in 2018 where there is a progressive wave potentially coming to make sure that candidates do not just rest on the laurels of basic Democratic messaging, but address the feeling of alienation people feel because as we show and as we've said already, it's not just progressives that feel like they don't have a voice, that Trump voters also feel they don't have a voice, that the, there's a reason Trump used draining the swamp in his campaign and there's a reason that resonated. And so the Democrats have the opportunity once Trump fails to drain the swamp, which we already know he is just populating the swamp, he is making it worse, Democrats have a real opportunity to speak to the swamp and offer real concrete solutions, of which there are many. And you can run on those and you can win. And there were some uh, hopeful signs in this last election, wouldn't you say, just uh, in November 2017? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think the 2017 election was a real election. It was a referendum in some respects on democracy. Um, I mean, there's going to be some amazing democracy reform that comes out of what happened on uh, election in the elections of 2017. Uh, you know, the Democrats took control of the Washington State House or State Senate, rather, and uh, you know they could they could pass automatic voter registration. It's the same in New Jersey. New Jersey is likely to be another state that passes automatic voter registration. And continuing of of enfranchisement of felons. Virginia is one of ten uh, one of uh, ten states that may never give the right to vote back to felons even after they've served their time. Um, and Terry McAuliffe, the former governor, was enfranchising these felons individually with a, basically a pardon. And so the new governor will continue that, that until the law is changed. But one of the more inspiring campaigns that I got a taste of recently in Florida is voter res restoration for felons, because I think most Americans agree that it is entirely unfair and cruel and against all of our interests to prevent people who've already paid their time pay their dues to society, and they still can't vote when they're released from from prison. So uh, Florida, Florida is, Florida is taking on this challenge and is pushing forward a um, second chance campaign in which they have to get 770,000 signatures to get on the ballot an amendment that would enable uh, felons to vote, felons who pay their time to vote. And you know what? It looks like they're going to make it. They're going to get those signatures. So this is really, really inspiring. And when I was in Florida, I, I was thrilled that one of my talks, I, I, people were actually there able to collect signatures among the audience. And so that, I think, is something, again, that most Americans agree is a absolutely essential step toward fairness and democracy. And so if they get this, if they get the signatures, it'll go on the ballot in 2018. And since it's going to be a, it will be a change to the the constitution of Florida. It'll have to pass by 60 percent. So the mar they'll have to get over 60 percent. So it'll be a, a tall order. But there's over 1.5 million felons in Florida. 
So this this could potentially enfranchise up to 1.5 million people. So this is likely going to be one of the most important democracy campaigns of the last 40 years. What uh, would you want people to take away uh, from your book, Daring Democracy, Igniting Power, Meaning and Connection for the America We Want? This is what we mainly want to communicate. I would say, is that fair, Adam, that democracy is life-giving as a process and that there is now for the first time in my life, I think the first time in our country that I know of, this movement of movements where people are coming together across all issues and saying, yes, democracy is foundational and there is a thrilling process that I can engage in. I can find my own power, my voice and learn and grow and share it with others and create community with others. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I echo that completely. And I just want to say that, you know, it's so easy to feel despair and hopelessness right now. And, you know, what gets us in the up in the morning is this movement, is this effort to, to not give up and to, you know, push for the reforms that we know work. And in many cases, actually, in, in most cases, especially when it's on the ballot, they win. And that is thrilling. And it gives us hope. And, you know, they're the one of the most exciting things, at least for me, is that, uh, you know, since we handed in the manuscript, the final manuscript of our book, we've been so pleasantly surprised to find that just after we handed it in, there have been numerous campaigns to start flourishing that we couldn't even capture because they were just developing after we handed in the manuscript. Um, so th this is this movement is ever growing. And the good way to keep up with it, we are teaming up with Democracy Initiative, which now has 63 organizations, 30 million people connected to it across all issues. And this is a commons, an online hub to keep informed and to figure out how you can best engage in the democracy movement. It's a very easy to remember website. It's just fieldguidetodemocracy.org. This is this is happening. So I hope all of the listeners can feel the excitement that we feel. Francis Moore LaPay and Adam Eichen. Daring Democracy is their book, Igniting Power, Meaning, and Connection for the America We Want. All right. Uh, thank you so much for the enthusiasm and for the real concrete hope that we have. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. Progressive Spirit is heard every week. On Progressive Spirit, you hear interviews with cutting-edge scholars, authors, and activists who have something to say about social justice, human flourishing, and things that matter. Progressive Spirit is formatted for radio and is distributed every week through the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. You can hear Progressive Spirit every week on WETS, Johnson City, Tennessee, WEHC, Emory, Virginia, WPBM, Asheville, North Carolina, Kutztown University Radio, Kutztown, Pennsylvania, KCEI, Taos, New Mexico, KACR, Alameda, California, WDRT, Viroqua, Wisconsin, KSOW, Cottage Grove, Oregon, and KZ88, Kabul, Missouri. You can also catch Progressive Spirit on your favorite podcast app. The website is progressivespirit.net. Follow also on Facebook and Twitter. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. I'm John Shack. Be well.